Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. While U.S. senators are busy holding hearings and forums and posing for pictures with the CEOs of AI companies, the European Union is just months away from passing sweeping regulation on artificial intelligence. As negotiations continue between the European Parliament, Council, and Commission, I spoke to one observer who is paying close attention to every detail. I'm Conor Dunlop. I'm the European Public Policy Lead at the Ada Lovelace Institute. Connor, what does the Ada Lovelace Institute get up to? Yeah. Well, we get up to a bunch of things. Primarily, we are an AI and data research institute. We're independently funded, and uh, we have the remit to look at how AI and data impact people and society. Where does it get its name? Ada Lovelace was an icon in the UK. She was one of the first computer scientists. We have the Alan Turing Institute in the UK, so... I think it was fitting to also set up an Ada Lovelace Institute. And yeah, she worked with Charles Babbage on the concept of a computer. And he was the daughter of Lord Byron as well, interestingly. So yeah, iconic for a few reasons. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you today a little bit about some work you've done around uh, the EU's AI Act and various recommendations you've made along the way. Can you just remind us of the history of the Act and catch us up on where we are in the process? So the AI Act was first proposed in April 2021. It is the first attempt globally to set horizontal legislation on the development and deployment of AI. From the perspective of AI Lovelace Institute, that was like a big reason for us to expand our work uh, beyond the UK to also look at the EU. We are getting towards the end. This should be finalized by the end of this year. They are now entering what are called the Trilogue negotiations, which is when the three EU institutions come together to thrash out a final, a final text for the AI Act. Maybe some details if it's helpful on kind of the framing of the Act. It's a product safety legislation in the EU, which means it's focused any AI system going on the market. And the remit is to reduce risks to health, safety, or fundamental rights. The way they do this is via what they call a risk-based approach. So there's a pyramid tiered system. The top tier is some practices which are completely prohibited. A tier below this is high-risk AI systems, which is the heart of the act and which gets the most attention in terms of what obligations high-risk AI systems would have to follow. Then below that, again, there's low-risk AI, which would be subject to some transparency requirements. And then at the bottom, a lot of other AI systems that wouldn't be touched by this regulation. One of the kind of pieces of news that I suppose was salient enough to cut through in the US was the idea that the EU really had to scramble to go back and accommodate generative AI after the launch of ChatGPT and some of the potential harms of large language models and other generative systems became apparent. Is that process further along? Yes. So that's definitely something that has changed from the starting point. The European Commission, who drafted the initial text for the AI Act, they would say that they weren't scrambling per se. They say that they were aware of these systems, but the attention was paid to basically the deployer of this system. So they thought they would be captured once a deployer adopted general purpose AI, a foundation model, generative AI to a high risk context. 
So as the process has developed, of course, ChatGPT and similar systems have, have shone a new light on this type of technology. But yeah, I think what's changed is the recognition that putting the full burden of compliance on the deployer is tricky and it arguably impossible for like an SME or a startup to fully comply. To take a, an example, um, there's some obligations around data governance requirements. If a sort of downstream deployer builds on top of a generative AI foundation model, general purpose AI, as you want to call it, they might not have access to the source data or the model. So it's very hard for them to, to, to make the model compliant. So that's one example um, of how the conversation has shifted. A lot of the attention now is really honing in on how to share this burden across the value chain, having some obligations on the upstream developer and some on the downstream deployer. You've made a series of, of new recommendations as these trialogues get underway. Let's just go through them sequentially and talk about some of the highlights of each one. First, you're calling for a centralized regulatory capacity to ensure an effective AI governance framework, you say. What's important in this centralized regulatory capacity? You want there to be a new office. Yes, exactly. So as it was originally conceived, there would have been an AI board, which was basically a board of experts from across EU member states. And that was going to be the sort of central function for governance. In our opinion, looking at historical examples such as the GDPR, there's been challenges around enforcement when it's primarily done only by uh, member state regulators. So having this central function, we see it as a good way to ensure like uniform enforcement across member states and to not have divergence in levels of protection. We've heard concerns from some member states, particularly smaller ones, that they don't have the technical expertise and the regulatory capacity to do complete oversight of the AI Act. So they would maybe appreciate support at a central level where that knowledge can knowledge and expertise can potentially sit and then be diffused across regulators. So yeah, that's something that we're very keen on. I also think what the office could do is really to be like a way to reduce these information asymmetries that we see between regulators and developers of AI. We've looked at governance in other jurisdictions, such as the Food and Drug Administration in the US, and you do see examples how over time a strong regulator can learn and upskill. This is really helpful for enforcement. So to us, it makes sense to have that at a central EU level in, the, in, in an AI office. The other thing that we looked at did a gap analysis of kind of what could a central function do compared to what a member state regulator could do. And another big one that was coming up in our research is to do monitoring and foresight activities. So rather than having, that's of course vital for regulators to make future push regulation. And it intuitively makes sense that this could be done at a central level rather than each member state doing that in their own initiative. The final one I would add is it could be a really nice way to establish feedback loops as well between developers um, and also civil society and affected persons and a central regulator. There's the option to set up what they call permanent subgroups in the AI office. So you could imagine developers or civil society experts sitting there, feeding into regulators what they're seeing out in the world and allowing future proof regulation in that regard. Who's going to pay for all this? <laughs> Again, we looked at the FDA in the US and also the European Medicines Agency in the EU. One thing that we think could be explored would be to have mandatory fees levied on developers themselves. 
We've also seen this with the EU Digital Services Act, some of the sort of the top tier or the, the very large online platforms, as they're called. They also pay fees that goes towards regulatory capacity. So yeah, I think there would have to be some thought given to who the fee, who would pay these fees. It wouldn't just be across the board. It might be some sort of threshold approach, but that's something that we're excited about exploring more. Hey, let's talk about one of the areas that has been contentious, which is around foundation models. These are the sort of genera- general purpose models that may or uh, may not be possible to discern the harms of across so many different types of applications. You say that these present novel governance challenges. Perhaps I'll ask you to maybe just detail a couple of those novel governance challenges and what you think should be done to address them. The novel challenges come from a few different elements of these foundation models. I think one of them is that they are incredibly complex pieces of technology. The developers themselves say that they don't understand uh, the technology. It's a black box is the term that we often hear. Um, so this poses a lot of challenges for accountability and also around you know, understanding how the model will interact when deployed in the world. I think an added complication is that there is a chance these will be a sort of new digital infrastructure. Uh, a lot of developers will be building on top of these models. Anything that goes wrong at the upstream sort of model level can proliferate quickly and have widespread societal implications. You also address open source foundation models as a kind of key area for the trilogs. Yeah, indeed. This has been one of the, the thorniest questions of the trilogs. And I think the questions we're grappling with are looking at the resources that are needed to build these foundation models. So it requires a lot of data, a lot of compute, a lot of talent to develop the algorithms. And what we're seeing as the market exists today, that most of these developers are closed providers or like large commercial companies who might say that they open source their model, but it's not open source as we historically have understood it in terms of software. So to take an example, Meta and Llama 2, they open source this, but they have massive commercial interest to do so. So I think that's the main question for us. Like we, we really don't want to have downstream developers or uh, building on top of uh, an open source model that didn't, that was exempt because there was a, a sort of, there's a push from some quarters that have exemptions for open source models in the AI Act. So yeah, I think that would lead to a divergence in levels of safety. And if it is a big commercial, well-resourced actor developing the model, we think they should also comply with the act. I do think that this question is not settled. So we've gone with like a, what I've said there is taking a very precautionary approach what we would, and this is actually why we led as our number one recommendation with this central regulatory capacity, like well-resourced regulatory capacity, because we really think that you need to have the future-proofed regulation, which can adapt those, how to approach, for example, open source models. We might see innovations, which mean smaller players can get in the game in terms of foundation models, like decentralized training and innovations in terms of fine-tuning. So we think maybe take the precautionary approach to begin with, but if it does turn out that there's public benefit or public interests for true open source models, then you would find ways, I think, to alleviate the burden on them through this sort of future-proofed regulation. That's how we've thought about open source so far. Did you happen to read this paper from David Gray Witter, Sarah West, Meredith Whitaker on uh, open source? Did that uh, affect your thinking on this at all? <laughs> yes, yeah, we definitely did read this. 
found it super informative because, yeah, I think the debate was a little bit binary and, like I said, trapped in, in this idea of what open source has been historically in terms of software. So I think that paper was very useful for giving concrete examples around how commercial interests have used open source in the past to advance business interests. So uh, one example is how Google open sourced uh, Android to make that sort of a new sort of infrastructure for applications. So you can see arguably similar trends in open source foundation models. So yeah, that for sure informed our thinking and it added some very welcome nuance to the debate. <laughs> so for my listeners, that paper is called Open for Business, Big Tech Concentrated Power in the Political Economy of Open AI. Let's look at some of the ideas around mitigating risk. So you've got various ideas about how to do that through the AI lifecycle. Um, what are some of the key ones? What we're really aspiring to is to develop an ecosystem of inspection is what we're calling it. There will be pre-market conformity for AI systems, but we think it's not a sort of one and done scenario. As I've said, they can interact in unusual ways when out in the world, and they can also learn through the life cycle. So what we're really excited about is strong pre-market checks. Like we would be very keen to see third-party audits uh, before going to market. We think that's a good safety mechanism. But then throughout the life cycle, we also want to find ways where auditors and other interested parties can have this thriving ecosystem to, to test for vulnerabilities and see how the models interact when out in the world. So one example of that is what we, well, not we have termed it, it's a term from the uh, Digital Services Act, uh, which is vetted researcher access. So we would like to find, we basically like similar provisions in the AI Act for vetted researchers to be able to access foundation models, potentially via API to stress test them. They do this with a completely different lens to what an internal red teaming process would be and different incentives. So we're quite keen on that. And yeah, I think relatedly in terms of this ecosystem, we're very keen to, to see a sort of what we call an EU benchmarking institute, but basically this could be funding for benchmarking initiatives across EU member states. We think this would really help with like the science of measurement for AI systems and doing effective evaluations. We're often hearing that's missing so far. So I think the EU could be a driver to build that ecosystem of inspection and ecosystem of measurement. Does the institute exist in a university or in some other context? There's sort of national metrology experts who already do similar work in, in different sectors in the EU. Uh, we think there's a lot to be learned from that. I actually read today that in France in November, they're going to have uh, the first of what will be an annual sort of AI benchmarking con convening. That those types of initiatives seem good to us. Academia would play a role as well. I think it's just getting this expertise, which is a bit decentralized, and finding a way where they can all feed into one place seems really useful. And we're especially seeing this in the context of maybe this is going too, too deep or too niche, but in terms of st EU standard setting, because at the minute standard setting processes, which will operationalize the high risk requirements of the AI Act, they're dominated by, well, first of all, technical expertise and not so much social technical expertise and also a lot of industry voices. So we think finding ways such as via benchmarking expertise and metro national metrology expertise, they can support and add independence to the standard setting process.
And is industry going to pay for this one too? <laughs> I think if we do find a good way to have certain thresholds, that will require some thinking. But if we find a way to set some thresholds for the most advanced or the most impactful AI models developers, I think that's, yeah, they could probably play a role in this as well. And to be fair, I'm hearing all the time, we're all hearing all the time from AI labs that there is not a good science of, of measurement out there. There's not there's not adequate evaluations out there. This is some of what we're seeing in the UK with the UK government working on evaluations for foundation models. So it's clear that's a gap. And yeah, I think they should be willing also to possibly contribute to filling that gap with some fees. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about high risk categorization and generally the sort of risk-based approach uh, in the regulation. What should be on the list? What should be categorized as high risk? So the starting point for the high risk categorization was they basically set a, a list of sectors which would be deemed high risk. And if you deploy an AI system in that sector, you'd be categorized as high risk. So some examples would be education or the judiciary system. There's, I think there was eight in total. Um, a lot of them focused on the public sector. So that was the starting point. If you deploy in a high risk area, you're deemed high risk. What has changed over the course of the negotiations is that the European Parliament and the Council of the EU have suggested adding uh, an additional filter to this high risk categorization. So it's not just based on if you deploy in a high risk area, there are some provisions that could exempt you. So one of the institutions suggested if the decision was purely accessory is the language that they used, but it was used in a high-risk area, you wouldn't have to follow the high-risk obligations. Similarly, if the developer or the deployer thought that the system didn't pose substantial risk, was the language used by another EU institution, then they could get out of the high-risk obligations. For us, that seems problematic. I think it puts a lot of power in the hands of um, developers and deployers to self-exclude themselves from the rules. Um, again, like I mentioned earlier, we're quite keen on a precautionary approach. So we think it's better to stick to the original proposal. If you deploy in a high risk area, you have the high risk obligations. And maybe there would be a way with this flexible, uh, well-resourced regulator, you could then over time sort of give implementing guidance on which types of uses might not actually be high risk. So let's talk about your last area, which is protection and representation for affected persons. What needs to be included here? What forms of redress need to make their way through the final version of the AI Act? So yeah, this was something that we saw as a gap from the very start that this sort of, if you look at the whole AI value chain, um, the provisions ended with the user or this was basically the deployer of the system. There wasn't any sort of language on affected persons. So the people who, yeah, the decisions of AI systems that, that will be affected. We think that's important to, first of all, just have a definition of affected persons in there. And I think that's the first step to give legal fitting and to, to, to protections for these affected persons. And as you mentioned, we're, we, we really want to see a comprehensive remedies and redress framework for affected persons. So one example of that is the right to lodge a complaint with supervisory authority or to pursue an explanation for decision-making of an AI system. So we see these as the first steps towards accountability. They also seem important for uh, another piece of legislation, which kind of closes the circle of the AI Act, which is the AI Liability Directive. That will also be very helpful for 
providing protections if something goes wrong with the AI system. But we do think this footing within the AI Act is also necessary um, on top of the AI liability directive. And yeah, maybe a final point around the sort of affected persons piece. We're quite excited about, as I mentioned before, using these subgroups of the AI office, potentially as a mechanism to have more sort of democratic oversight of future AI governance. So we can imagine something like a, a citizens assembly sitting as a permanent subgroup. We think it would need to be further developed, but we think that's an idea that would be exciting to explore. I think that would be very helpful for offering a sort of encompassing protection for affected persons in the AI Act. I want to ask you about industry's influence uh, at this stage of things. We know that industries put a lot of effort into lobbying around the AI Act. Billy Perigo in time uh, this summer had some documents that he was able to unearth that looked at how OpenAI in particular had lobbied to water down the AI Act. Are you able to see industry's influence on the legislation at this point? Are, Are there aspects of it that you feel like industry has got what it wanted? That's a good question. Industry lobbying is not a new thing at all in the EU. It's happened always in terms of digital regulation and beyond. I feel like over time, there has been a bit more cynicism to, to industry approaches to, to lobby and to water down the act. There's more of a desire to find independent expertise than maybe there was before. I think a lot of the expertise, which is true, a lot of this is inside industry, but I think there's more and more sort of independent expertise popping up. So I think that's been a welcome change. I think in terms of how happy industry will be and what the end goal will be, it's hard to say. I, th- I think a lot will be decided by these final months. I think in the European Parliament's text, I think speaking personally for us at the Ada Lovelace Institute, broader civil society, I think the European Parliament did a stellar job. They, they didn't succumb to industry efforts to, to water down some of those elements. But let's see, because now there's three EU institutions in the game for the trilogue stage. And yeah, I think we'll know by the end of this year whether industry will be happy with the end result. OpenAI was particularly concerned about being designated a high-risk system or having its foundational model, GPT, designated as a high-risk system. Ties back to some of your recommendations and some of the concerns around the high-risk categorization. Yeah, yeah. And to be fair on that one, I can see the point that a foundation model or general purpose AI, the risk also comes from the area of deployment, right? So I think that's why the focus has become around what does responsible development look like and what can the upstream do to make sure a, a, a product is safe before it goes to market. That goes a little bit beyond just saying it's blanket high risk. It's a bit more refined and a bit more tailored. And I think that's been like a welcome uh, change in over the process. Ada Lovelace Institute is based in the UK. The UK is taking a, maybe a more laissez-faire approach. What can you tell us about how things are evolving in the UK? My take, a little bit from afar from Brussels, is like we're excited that the AI Safety Summit is happening. We think it's great that safety is the lens that they're applying. As an institute, we would have liked to see a broader scoping of safety. At the minute, it's only talking about sort of frontier AI risks. But yeah, I think a more all-encompassing approach to safety would probably be welcome in our perspectives to look at the harms happening out in the world also today. I think it's good the UK is waking up on this topic, at least. You've already mentioned that the act will likely be approved by end of year. What is the next 
point on the calendar? What is the next date we should be looking for? So there will be a handful of what they call trilogue negotiations. I think we're looking at the 2nd, 3rd of October. There will be some. The number of trilogues left to happen, it, it's a little bit in flux, but we should have at least five to six more trilogues, I would guess. So those are like the big milestones, but those happen in very closed door settings. So yeah, milestones, but we don't always know exactly what's going on in there. A lot of the work then is just happening on the side, the sort of policy advisors, they work on the sort of technical text in between the trilogues. So that's the day-to-day grind. And then yeah, each trilogue is the big milestone, I would say. So still some room for surprises. <laughs> yes, I think definitely. I think based on history, like for example, there's a Services Act and other pieces of legislation. Yeah, you, you can see quite substantial changes during the trilogues. So yeah, I think people in Brussels like us, we're definitely paying attention to see how this develops. Well, Connor, I appreciate your close attention to this. I uh, also appreciate seeing Tech Policy Press cited in the recommendation. So thank you very much for that. And uh, <laughs> hope perhaps we can have you back on to talk about this uh, when the new draft is available. Yeah, I would love to, Justin. It was really a pleasure. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.